This is EmacsCast episode 8. My name is Rakim. Today I want to talk about writing in Emacs and org mode. First, let's start with the config news as usual. Last time I was speaking about disabling line numbers and not needing line numbers. And one of the main reasons to start with that was that both ways I used to enable line numbers were slowing down Emacs. It is nice to have line numbers sometimes. Every once in a while I find myself gazing down to see the line number because it's still in the mode line but not near my cursor which isn't ideal but for the most part it's fine and as i explained i 99% of the cases this is just a distracting number on the left that occupies space and adds noise but then multiple people and thank you pointed out that uh, in emacs 26 there is a built-in nice and really fast way to show line numbers and it's display line numbers. That's it. It was introduced in 2017, and they say it's almost twice as fast as Linum mode. I still thought, okay, well, this is good, but um, I don't need line numbers. But then someone else also pointed out that they use display line numbers to also highlight the current line. If you highlight the whole line, which is another built-in feature in Emacs and most uh, IDEs and text editors today highlight the current line, this adds a bit of a complexity in a way that the highlighted line is of different background color. That's what highlight is. And even if it's slightly different, it still has to be more pronounced so that it makes sense. You have to notice this is my current line. But then all the syntax highlighting, all the colors in the text itself now have to account for two cases when the line is highlighted and when the line is not and often i found that you know if you have some syntax highlighting or if you have a theme which is not the case for me for the most part but still if i choose another theme for some reason then it might not fit with my current highlight line color oh another case is i don't do much of syntax highlighting or themes it's quite minimal. So for the most part, the whole gray highlight is just fine. But then I have the smart parents and highlight matching pairs of tags and, and parents and quotes and any pairs of elements. I like them to be quite sharp, something like a pink highlight for the matching tag or purple for some other elements. And that doesn't play well sometimes with this current highlight. I think it's fine, but it would be nicer to have less of this complexity. So if you enable display line numbers and then go to customization settings to that, you can customize the font or the face for the number that will be on the left side in this column of line numbers. And it has a lot of customizations, just as usual. And you can set the background and foreground color and borders. And so if you set the background color to something, then that could be your replacement for current line. You just see the current line, but it's not interfering with the actual text on that line. It's in the number on the left. And that number is always of the same color, so you don't care about changing colors. And so, yeah, I did that, and it's it's excellent. And now I have one less thing in my config and one less thing to worry about, uh, one less source of complexity. Another source of complexity uh, was Projectile. Now, Projectile is an excellent package for project management. If you open the documentation for Projectile, it's huge. <laughs> Just like uh, many other packages, it's super powerful. It's one of the essential things that make Emacs a full-blown IDE. 
But as with many things in my life, I'm not using it even for 80%, even for 70%. I think I'm using it for just two features. Every once in a while, I go into my config. What can I remove? What other source of complexity can I remove and maybe replace with something simpler or consider not having it at all? Consider maybe I don't need it anymore or I didn't need it in the first place. With Projectile, I found that I really need it for two reasons. Quickly switch between projects from anywhere. I just want to dive in into a project by a couple of keystrokes. And another reason is having this really nice search within a project. So if I open a file and it's part of a project and projects are defined by the Git repositories. If I open a file that's part of a project, I want to be able to find other files within the same project by the name and find files by their content. So my regular setup that I had for a year or so was projectile and council. And I were able to switch between projects with one keystroke. And the good thing about projectile is once you switch to a project or once you navigate to a project manually, it is saved into its cache. And the next time it's in the list of your projects. But if you have many, many projects in your code folder or whatever, you can add the whole folder to projectile. It will scan it. It will add all of them into the cache. For several years, I was working on my startup. It involved dealing with hundreds and hundreds of small repositories. This startup is a set of online courses and each course is a separate repository. And there are also exercises for courses and each exercise is a separate repository. So there are hundreds of repositories which I need to be able to switch between really quickly. By adding the whole folder into the projectile cache, it was really easy to just fuzzy search for a name and get into the file I want. To search within the repository, I was using council with council projectile AG. I can search for any word, any set of characters, and it will really quickly search the whole repository and in real time show me the results. This is excellent. This is something that I cannot live without anywhere. And to switch between different files in the project, I bound this to command P because I'm just used to how it was in Sublime and some other editors out there. After switching jobs and going away from that startup, I no longer have this need to switch between hundreds of projects. I only have three, four current projects at most, but usually just one or two. So now I'm using Projectile, which is a huge, huge, powerful package for basically two features. And it turns out, of course, those two features can be used without Projectile. I disabled Projectile, which is a nice feeling, of course, uh, not because Projectile is bad, but because I have this recurring task in my to-do manager, which I think repeats every 10 days. And it says, delete something from life. And it could be anything, a piece of clothing, or maybe uh, I told about this already. And now it sounds like I'm an insane person, but assuming I haven't, just every 10 days, I delete something small. It, it could be, you know, old socks that should have been thrown away a year ago. Now I have an excuse for that. <laughs> it could be a, a package from Emacs. I could be an app from my phone. Whatever little thing I can get rid of, I do. The usual case, I think, from, for many people in the fortunate developed world is that you get things quicker than you get rid of them. So that was one of the reasons to do that. And also, it is a, a weird kind of, pleasant feeling, just having less weight in a way. 
well, since I'm spending so much time in front of a computer and in this whole computer world that I am building, and a significant part of that world is Emacs, deleting something from my Emacs config feels like I'm losing weight, like I'm getting into shape. I wasn't using this fat, so it is useful in theory, but not for my use case, so maybe maybe get rid of it. So now I don't have projectile. I switch between projects just you know, by navigating to a project, which is just fine because I do it not that often. And to search within a project, I can use console ag. And there's also console git command, which switches to a file within a git repository. Now, the only downside to this is that the file should be checked in. If you are in a repository, say you open a project, you create a new file, it won't show up in that console git window. You won't be able to switch to it by its name until you commit it. I haven't looked deeply into this. It's not a problem for the most part. And it actually forces you to be more disciplined in a way, because I often work on projects and I just, you know, ignore, since I'm working alone on most projects, I just ignore Git until it's too late or it's deploy time or something. That's something that forces me to actually be uh, responsible and, and create commits. But of course I should do it sooner and more incrementally. So this forces me to write some initial code, commit it, have some nice commit message, have this explicit state of the work has started on this file or the work has started on this feature. So yeah, that was a long explanation of just disabling one package and replacing it with a couple of key bindings. All right, let's talk about writing in Emacs. This is, as you might imagine, will be mostly about org mode because that is the most powerful and arguably the best way to write, especially if you intend to do something with this text later, maybe export it into another format, publish it, maybe use within some publishing system. I am using Emacs and org mode to write most of the things I write, and lately I've been writing more. Now, if you're just starting, the basic org mode features are just excellent, and you don't need to go that deep to take advantage of org mode, to actually get something out of it that you cannot get out of other editors and other writing environments. It might feel overwhelming, especially considering the manual for org mode is a thick book, just like with Emacs, there are plenty of features, but the most basic features are simple, intuitive, and you don't need to know that much about them. You can outline stuff, you can you can write headings with different levels, and you can expand and collapse them. This was a natural way of writing for me before Emacs and org mode. I would write headings for different sections. Let's say I'm writing an article or a small book. I just write down the chapters. I have this outline and because it is natural, it feels natural. Well, you put this skeleton and then you add meat, which is the actual content. And if it's too hard to add meat, if you find, if I find myself like it's too scattered, like this is a heading and I'm not sure how to start it, what to write into it. This means it probably needs more skeleton. There's not enough structure. I would add subheadings and subsections until I have this smallest thing that makes sense. And it is absolutely clear what meat, what text should go into it. A really useful feature of Emacs is indirect cloning of a buffer. Not many editors allow you to open the same file in two panes, 
like two tabs and see it side by side. Maybe you want to look at one part of a file while writing into another part of a file. Even if an editor allows for that, there could be some quirks. Like if you open a file on the left side and then on the right side and you start editing on the right side, it might jump on the left side, like it might move. Something unexpected could happen because the file updates. If you do it, if you just open two buffers and you put them in two different windows on the left and the right, and I'm talking in Emacs language where windows are what I would call panes or panels, and buffers are portals to show files. Now I have two panes, two windows, on the left and the right, and they show the same file. This isn't ideal, at least with org mode, because let's say you open the same file, you can scroll and edit independently, that's fine. So you are able to look at one let's say the beginning of a file on the left side and then write something in the end of the file on the right side. But if you, for example, expand or collapse headings, then they would expand and collapse in both buffers. And that might not be something that you want. Maybe I want to collapse everything but one section on the left side, but still have all the sections open on the right side. By just opening two buffers with the same file, you won't be able to do it. They will sync all the time. But in Emacs, there is this indirect cloning of a buffer thing, which basically disables this synchronization. You're still looking at the same file and there is synchronization of content. So if you write something in the file on the right side, it will instantly update on the left side, but none of the other things will sync, like the position or state of the headings or any other thing that a buffer might have, some meta information about the current state of the buffer, basically. And I use this often for two cases. One is just what I described. I want to look at one part, edit the other part, and I want to have different states of collapsed or, or maybe narrowing, for example. Narrowing in org is you can select some region or maybe a subsection, some part of your text, and then hit a key combination and switch to a mode where only that section is visible. You are still in the file and you're still editing the same file. And if you save it, it will save the whole file, but you don't see anything else but the section you are interested in. This is really good for focusing on a chapter or something. So I often have a full file on the left side scroll to a position I'm interested in and just a part of that file on the right side narrowed down to a subsection. Another use case for this cloning is seeing this excellent outline all the time. Like seeing, imagine writing a book and seeing the table of contents updated live on the left side. Just these small features, which are again 1% of what org mode can do in Emacs, are already more than I could have gotten from other editors. Some professional writing editors like Scrivener, which target professional writers, especially fiction writers, offer some similar functionality because, well, fiction writers especially, they need to look at different parts of the book, access different sections at the same time, look at the big picture. But none of the regular human level, <laughs> regular user editors allow to do anything like that. At least uh, I've tried a bunch, couldn't find anything. So once you have your text in org mode, you can export without any additional things. You can export into multiple formats. By default, you can export to PDF through LaTeX. Well, I'm going to say LaTeX because LaTeX, it sounds too weird to me. When I say or hear LaTeX, I feel it's like a, like a small village in Israel. It's just weird for a program. So I'm going to call it LaTeX. 
which arguably isn't less weird, but I'll go with it. Org can create really nice looking PDFs because it first creates latex files and then uses some default latex export functionality to generate PDFs. And if you've seen scientific papers or maybe um, assignments and, and homeworks and other papers done by computer science professors, you might notice this familiar style, this really nice fancy serif font, big margins. It's quite distinct. This is what Latex creates by default when you export it into PDF and there are multiple styles by default, an article or a letter or a book. So I really enjoy just writing and I told about this in the one of the first episodes, my config is in org mode and I can export it to PDF and it looks like a nice computer science paper. Like it's more serious than it is. You can also export to HTML and by default it just creates this almost styleless HTML with the default browser styles. One of the things that I used to use this, but not anymore, is I had a file called links.org and I had a capture template. From anywhere within Emacs, I can hit two keys and add a link to my list of links. And this is just, you know, random links, interesting stuff on the internet. But I also had this set up so that once that thing is saved into the file, the links.org file, this triggers the automatic export to HTML. I added a custom CSS to just make it look a bit nicer. And then that generated HTML file is stored in Google Drive. It used to be Dropbox, now it's Google Drive, but whatever. The point is, it is now kind of synced and I have this nice looking full page of links synced to all of my devices. I can now just, you know, open it in the browser, bookmark it and have this button in the browser that shows me this file. I stopped using this system because I, I found myself forgetting it exists and that's not a good sign. But you can imagine having a simple publishing system. What would be the easiest way to create a web page just with some text and, and stuff, assuming you already have a web server running somewhere? Well, I would say the easiest way, if you are using Emacs, is write in org, have this automatic HTML generation so that every time you save this org file, the HTML file is generated. And then have some sort of automatic, maybe rsync to the server. Then you would just write, save a file, and that's it. I want everything to work like that. I'm not going to talk about blogging because I had a separate episode about that. But in short, it also uses org mode and it uses a static website generator called Hugo and an excellent package that connects the two that generates markdown for the Hugo publishing system from org. And again, it's so simple because all I have to do is write and save and it's done. There is this deploy through Git, but that could be automated as well. So if you're interested in that, check out episode five. Well, this covers the simplest cases. Just write some text, export, have a nice PDF, have a nice HTML, that's it. But what if you are writing something bigger, like an ebook, and you might need to export to multiple formats to have PDF book, an EPUB book, maybe even, you know, Microsoft Word, something else. 
and you need them all to be consistent and you need to be able to quickly edit the source file and have all the other formats generated on the fly. There is a program called Pandoc, which is a universal document converter. It has nothing to do with Emacs, just a separate program available for most platforms. It's open source, it's crazy powerful. And it's funny if you go to their GitHub page, there is this infographic that shows you all the source and target formats connected by thin lines. And it's useless because it's impossible to to understand anything from there because there are so many lines and so many formats. But the idea behind that is, I think, just to show how many formats, how many ways to convert Pandoc supports. The easiest way would be, you know, if you're writing in org, just save the file, go to the terminal and run Pandoc from that file into anything else. It can create Markdown, it can create EPUBs, PDFs, Word, OpenOffice, tens and tens of different formats. And it just works. It's excellent. It's one of those things that does one job, does it really, really well. Now, we're not savages. We're not going to go to the terminal from Emacs or, you know, open the terminal in Emacs, which you can do, of course, but why? You have a nice package called OX Pandoc. And it just connects the two. It connects org mode with Pandoc. From within Emacs, you can export the current file into any other format by creating a new file. But which is also really useful is that you can convert into a new format without creating a new file, but creating a temporary buffer. That opens possibilities because, well, maybe I just want to have this new format and use it within an existing file. Or you can create a really small elisp function that would convert it right into the temporary buffer and then copy the whole thing into your clipboard or kill ring. Because at least for me, I often need to convert into some other format, but ultimately I want that result to be in the clipboard. And you can create another function that would generate all the target formats you need. So I was writing a book, and when I say a book, it's not Game of Thrones, it's just, you know, a small niche ebook. I needed to have at least five different formats. And the nature of this book was that the changes were often, even after the publication, the changes were, you know, typos or additional stuff. And I wanted to have the system where I write, I save, and I don't do anything else. I have the result bundle ready to go. And that was really easy with Pandoc and OX Pandoc. Of course, you can do the same from the terminal. You can, you know, have a make file or shell script but not doing really anything, not even leaving Emacs, not toggling any command, just having this unsafe create bunch of formats with nice file names and extensions in the place where I want is excellent. So this is getting longer than I expected. I thought, well, I'm going to talk about this idea for just five minutes. I think I should end here and continue in the next episode because I still want to talk about multiple use cases that I have. One of the use cases that I often have to write in some weird web-based editor, which, you know, nobody really likes and nobody should be forced to use that, but that's the use case. Those editors usually allow you to insert raw HTML, but I want to write in org or at least in markdown, but not in raw HTML. And I don't want to fiddle with your what you see is what you get visual editor with weird key combinations and unexpected behavior and non-transparent behavior. So one of the use cases for me is I want to write an org 
and I want to quickly insert the resulting raw HTML into a web form. So that's one of the topics. Another topic is doing this on scale. What if I need to do this multiple times a day for weeks and weeks and collaborating with someone else? This is another use case for where org mode and Emacs really helped me stay sane. I needed to publish a full-blown online course and the platform that I'm using uses these HTML visual editors. So I needed to speed up this process. Okay, so these are the two things I want to talk about in the next episode, writing in Emacs part two. Thank you so much for your support, your kind comments and emails. Keep writing to me. It makes my day every time I get a nice or even not nice, which I didn't get yet, but it's fine. (laughs) Any sort of feedback, any sort of comment. Um, I'm so happy that this is still the world where you can be into some obscure thing, like, you know, discussing line number plugin for text editor for 20 minutes and still having thousands of people listening to it, being interested in it and having the shared experience. Did I sound new agey? Well, whatever. Every time I think about it, look at the big picture, it kind of gives me hope or makes me more optimistic. It's nice that, and I think this is the most valuable thing about the internet. What are the chances that I could, without access to all the people in the world, without access to the web, I could find even two people interested in the same obscure set of things, set of interests. It's just statistically unplausible. But now I'm not even worried if I get into some other obscure thing, even more obscure than Emacs. I will still find people interested in it. I'll still find communities around it. Making a podcast and getting feedback from you, the listeners, is an even more rewarding experience. Because not only I feel like I'm a part of this community that's into a particular thing, I also feel heard. I'm not speaking into into the void. I am speaking to actual people. And they say, I liked it. I enjoyed it. And I'm thinking, awesome. <laughs> this, uh, this sounds more and more <laughs> primitive and stupid. All right. Thanks again. And thanks to my patrons uh, you can also become a patron and support this podcast the basis of the patreon.com system is that in my case you can select any amount of dollars and support this show per episode all right until next time bye bye cxcc no i shouldn't i shouldn't do this it's not even cheesy it's just it's idiotic